0: I am so excited to have in the studio with me today, Barb Nickel. Barb, welcome. Thank you. This is so fun to have you in the infusion room. And today we're going to talk about vascular access device complications. And I just can't think of a better person to talk about this from a clinical perspective than you, Barb.
1: Well, I appreciate that.
0: Tell us a little bit about your practice and your background.
1: Uh, I am a clinical nurse specialist and I actually got involved with INS, uh, back when I was really just a bedside nurse. That's not really a just, but that's
0: no what I was
1: at the time. <laughs> uh, and I was doing policies and procedures for my, my facility. And as a critical care nurse, uh, vascular access is critical. And so I, discovered INS and realized that was the gold standard and decided to go to one of their conferences and uh, realized that my facility needed this additional information. We had so many gaps in practice. And so I actually then I was going to start getting my master's and uh, study for this year and I in between semesters for my master's degree. And uh, so got those all kind of together and then as a CNS, and I've been in this role for a little over 12 years, vascular access has just always been one of my buckets, one of my areas of expertise. Uh, I was on the National Council for Education for INS, which is where I met Don. We were uh, co-members. I actually got to be chair and lead nurse planner for three years, so that was just an incredible opportunity, and I really got to know the standards well, and then a little over two years ago was asked if I would be a part of the standards practice committee and, uh, actually help to write, rewrite the new edition. And that was an honor. It was much more work than I thought it was going to be oh, <laughs> it was two yeah. years of intense work. Uh, mm-hmm. but it again, um, has just been such an honor and, uh, just so valuable. And, uh, so now my work actually from the point of being a bedside clinician that had knowledge, has expanded to where I'm gonna lead a national collaborative for my corporation for vascular access and uh, to improve quality of care. So it's just, uh, again, INS has just helped propel that all the way through. And the fact that now I'm one of the standards of practice committee members, uh, that just automatically speaks to expertise and folks are seeking advice. And and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's been a wonderful journey really, it has. Yeah.
0: Yes, and we thank you so much. We know that you and many others were so dedicated to that task of getting those standards revised, written, and published, and thank you so much. So... You have an exceptional clinical background, and the the discussion today is about vascular access device complications. So, for our listeners, we're gonna we're gonna use the word VAD, and that's going to mean any type of vascular access device, um, unless we're specifying as a central line or a port. Um, but we're going to talk about the types of complications that we have. And what nurses need to know, and and Barbara, I'd also invite you to really share what it is you see in practice, the concerns that you have about um, are we assessing the way we should, and are we intervening the way that we should to work with these complications. So let's start out with extravasations and infiltrations.
1: Okay, obviously that is in the peripheral realm much more than it is central because extravasations shouldn't by nature be very common <clears throat> with the central line. So, and I have done just a great deal of study. Uh, actually, one of the interesting inroads that uh, my work with INS was able to make is I also have done work with AACN, which is American Association of Critical Care Nurses, i uh, been a part of some of their committees and. I uh, saw really that they had very little in infusion therapy in their documents, in their critical care nurses is one of their main journals. And so I applied actually as a a contributing editor and said, this is a gap I see in what you cover. And they agreed. And so I have now four articles for them all on peripheral vascular access, because Mm -hmm. I really think it is the area of vascular access device um, utilization that is it, it's really well. Actually, I my last article was on uh, peripheral vascular uh, access infections, and I titled it "Hiding in Plain Sight." Yes, and that that really is, I think, what vascular access peripheral vascular access is doing. We just assume that it's there, and, um, and patient harm that comes from it is just a part of being in the hospital. You know, multiple sticks, these complications. Uh, it just is what it is. And that really is not, I don't think, acceptable. And uh, Helm's article that he put in the Journal of Infusion ne- Nurses back in 2015, I think was just a wonderful seminal work. accepted, but unacceptable. And the failure rate of peripheral IV access is unacceptable.
0: So there's this myth out there that it's just an IV. It's it just is. a peripheral IV. And, and yet the injury... And the infection that can come from a peripheral IV is, is just as great. Yes. We had a um, presenter at one of our national conferences at INS a few years back, and she was an attorney who has discussed uh, some problems that have come and some litigation that came forward um with infusion practice and she said it best I, I think this is so important to think about she said when i go to a theater she goes i can go in the first door or i can go in the last door but i still reach the same popcorn stand mm-hmm. meaning it doesn't matter if this is a peripheral IV." Or a central line, we're still in that patient's vasculature. We're still causing potential harm because of that insertion,
1: right? And with the low blood flow in the peripheral vascular area, and especially with um, critical care patients, which really has been the the bulk of my career, you really have decreased perfusion in a lot of cases. Oh, so, so, sure, and that's sure. yeah, that's really important. Um, them that, you know the CLABSI reduction initiative where patients or where facilities are trying to reduce their CLABSI rates their central venous um, catheter utilization rates that is now shifting a burden onto peripheral vasculature that it really wasn't meant to take and so yeah that's really where so much of my work has been. I also uh, artic- uh, wrote an article on High risk medications in critical care and in peripheral vasculature, in particular, and you can really see that trend going toward using pressors on just high risk medications peripherally to avoid putting in a central line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as regarding infiltration and um, extravasation, we had talked a little before the podcast happened. I, as a also, I teach in a uh, bachelor of science nursing program. And I can only speak really for this division, but I, what I understand and what I see in the literature is that really by and large nursing programs don't cover vascular access, device selection and management well. I know my students get more than the rest. <laughs> we are in a five campus uh, division in, in the college that I work for. And uh, I know that my students are getting more than anyone else just because I know it's so important. Uh, but I think by and large, nursing programs are not covering quality and safety when it comes to vascular access, device selection, and care. They may get some of the, you know, the kernels that they need, you know, the kernels of truth. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, they get out into a facility, and quite a bit of my career has also been transition of new grads into practice and orientation and developing that. And I have Uh, helped in preceptor programs as well. And if they don't learn it well in nursing school, then they get to a preceptor that really doesn't do, you know, doesn't understand it either and has never really learned, then bad practices just proliferate. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really where a lot of our IV outcomes are from is we haven't really shored up the peripheral vascular access area to make sure that we really are doing good standard of care in that area. So the INS wrote a white paper uh, several years ago, 2014, I think it was, uh, regarding how often peripheral IVs should be assessed. And I don't know that that really is well known. Uh, It was in the 2016 standards. It's in, of course, the current one as well. It basically says a peripheral IV that is in constant use should be assessed at least every four hours. And, you know, the funny thing is, is we assess but we don't necessarily document. Mm-hmm. And whenever we say assessment, that means, yes, I should document as well that I assess the site. So our documentation really should back up that I'm assessing at least every four hours. Mm-hmm. And then I need to assess per risk of patient. Absolutely. So four hours being the bare minimum.
0: And the bare minimum. Yeah. It, that same document, it takes it down to the type of infusate. Mm-hmm. and And for some very risky situations, it comes down to five minutes. Exactly. You're basically with that patient, ensuring that
1: everything goes well. And that's the piece that I don't think nursing understands. In fact, what I see, even when I've educated this in my own facility, nurses default back to just doing IV assessments with their head-to-toe assessments. And that's mm-hmm. all they do. And if that's once a shift, that's twice the shift, then that really there's opportunity to uh, have Complications in between there. So, yes, uh, the increased risk is what we need to make sure that our staff are understanding. Uh, you know, is it in, in an area of flexion? Uh, is it in an area that already has some damage? Uh, the person has poor perfusion? Um, you know, is their back pressure? Do they have vascular limitation already? And then, of course, what am I infusing? And I've seen, you know, any number of things going in peripherally. You know, calcium into a midline. Oh my! You know, pressors into a site that really, you know, even when it first was placed, was not a good choice for a mm. pressor. Uh, and so, yes, I think there's a huge body of knowledge gap regarding peripheral IV management and how we keep our patients safe. Um, so, if we're doing the right assessment parameters uh, based on patient risk, uh, the critical piece of infiltration and extravasation management is uh, uh, number one, placing the right vascular access yes. uh, based on patient need and then assessing and catching any complication as early as possible. I know one key uh, strategy that is so important and I know I don't I know in our facility it's it's difficult to get nurses to do this but at bedside rounding, they really need to get into the bedside and actually both physically see the IV sites at that time because that's just one more assessment. And it really can be a comparison and actually a learning process. If it's an experienced nurse, you know, giving uh, or taking report from an, a non-experienced nurse, it's an excellent time for coaching. Uh, and so many things, as we all know, if we've been around the block a few times, things happen at shift change. Yes. Yes. That's where there's there's delays, and we mm-hmm. can't let those times diminish how often we're assessing a site. Right.
0: Um,
1: so again, proper vascular access device, and then proper assessment, and really understanding what's normal and uh, what should go in peripherally. Uh, that should limit the extent of damage that should happen from infiltration and extravasation. That's kind mm-hmm. of global knowledge. There's so many ways we could, of course, go with this, but I'll let Absolutely. you ask
0: another question. <laughs> sure, uh, Barb, have you ever had a patient uh, their peripheral IV is burning or their arm is burning, and they've they report that they've been told this this is just the way this drug is. If you can tolerate it, it's going to be done in 40 minutes. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, have you ever had that happen in your oh, practice? Indeed. Yeah, potassium chloride. In fact, we used to have a practice of putting lidocaine in the potassium yes. chloride,
0: <laughs> so they couldn't feel the burn. Yeah, yes. right.
1: So that they uh, could potentially, uh, yeah, that would diminish that.
0: tolerate tolerate the infusion. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's in the way that the nurse is educated and mm-hmm. coached and precepted.
1: No question.
0: Where they've they've just they've perpetuated a myth, you know, that it's okay to tell patients that this is going to burn. Um, I'm going to put a a cold pack on that for you so that you can tolerate it while it's infusing. And they don't understand that if the the catheter is in the internal lumen of the vessel, that tunic intima has no innervation. It should not burn. And once it burns, what does that tell you? Right, it's exceeded the tunica intima. has gone into, gone beyond that, to, to the tunica media and out into the tissues where there definitely are nerves. And once you've done that, you've already caused vessel damage and tissue damage.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So pain should really be a, a key symptom that we pay attention to, uh, whether it's on palpation or whether when it's you're starting. And yeah, nurses tend to. I remember. Back in my early career, and I've said this so many times as I've taught, bad IVs don't get better. They just don't. I remember, you know, as a new grad or new nurse, just keep watching it. When I remember thinking, keep watch it, do what? (laughs) Get worse. (laughs) It's only going to get more red. It's only going to leak more. And so once we start having symptoms of dysfunction, we need to remove. We need to uh, get it recited. Uh, because that's simply going to make it worse, and you, have yeah, very well stated. What's going on internally? Um, mm-hmm. So pain is there for a reason.
0: Yes, absolutely. We're gonna we're gonna really take a different turn here. Let's talk about air embolism with CVAD discontinuation. What are your concerns, and what do you think uh, nurses need to appreciate more about discontinuing
1: discontinuing CVADs? Well, um, yeah, that can go in many different directions. At a very basic level, uh, this is a skill that really should cause them to stop and think, wait a minute, I've never done this before. Um, You can get an order for things from a provider and they may Mm -hmm. think it's no big deal. But if you've never been trained, you should never just venture in and do something. And I know that that has happened. Nurses have just followed the order, taken that line out and then not realized that it was really a big deal. Um, So, depending on the length of the vessel, or excuse me, the length of time that it's been in, it can really develop a track. And so, once that capter comes out, if we don't properly put pressure and then some kind of occlusive dressing, that track can actually allow air to enter in during removal. Um, I've taken out uh, just, you know, innumerable lines from critically ill patients and uh, timing that with expiration or actually having them take a full breath in so they really can't breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. If you can time it that way, Um, a good idea holding pressure uh, using a Vaseline gauze or something occlusive like that. And then keeping that on the site. I know the standard says up to 24 hours to make sure that there is no track that they can bring air into their central circulation. Cause if they do, obviously um, air isn't meant to be in large volumes in the vascular space and they, Uh, there's been documented, thankfully rare, but pulmonary embolism and cerebral um, embolisms from them. Right. Um, so uh, again, you need to follow your, your facility's policy and procedure on that as far as patient positioning and then how it's removed and what kind of dressing you put on at removal to make sure that that doesn't happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And remaining, uh, you know, keeping that patient in that position for a good length of time afterwards as well. Um, there are so many things, and they're, they're easy to do. Those things are easy to do, um, but if you don't know to do them, it, it's no longer a complication. <laughs> Sometimes you're dealing with a, a patient death.
1: And you're, um, you're held to that standard, so I, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to say, well, I nobody told me. No, you have policies, procedures, and it's not enough to go to an experienced nurse and say, have you ever done this? How do you do it? You really do need to go back to the source of truth so that you're doing it correctly.
0: Okay. So let's talk about a different type of air embolism. So we're not discontinuing a CVAD, but we are noticing something different and goofy about the patient. Um, and what we might not have noticed is that there's been a line disconnection where a lure lock has come disconnected. That line is open. What do we do um, if, if we find
1: something like that? Um, well, uh, Immediate yeah. steps. If your patient's in compromise, if their SATs low and and uh, those types of things, then you put them on their left side and and uh, possibly a little bit of head down and yeah. uh, call for help rapidly. Um, that helps to kind of keep it trapped a little bit. Uh, obviously, we want to prevent that. So if uh, and another line that I've said hundreds of times, I know as I've taught staff, if there is a clamp on a central venous catheter, use it. Um, mm-hmm. and never disconnect something without clamping it first to make sure that no air can get in. Uh, and then make sure that, um, whatever needless connector you have tubing is, is well seated on the catheter. You really got to watch lines. I, with COVID, uh, we prone people mm-hmm. just, and, and that, you know, as far as line disconnection, mal, line, uh, malposition has really been a challenge. Uh, so you have to know exactly where your lines are at all times to make sure that some disconnection doesn't happen so yes you would need to know how to manage an air embolism if it does happen they'll get tachycardic and hypoxic and uh, putting them in the right position and then getting a hold of the provider Mm. um, and clamping the line of course so nothing more goes in and then yeah they may need replacement of that they may need resuscitation that would not be a good situation so prevention is always the best track
0: all right we're going to change topics entirely again let's talk about phlebitis and specifically thrombophlebitis that's as a result
1: of a uh, vascular access device so thrombophlebitis yeah i i believe uh, that it happens much more than we know and again the pathophysiology that you described where you have you know destruction really of the intimal layer on down, that sets up an inflammatory response and all of the pro-coagulation factors start rushing in. So, I mean, all vascular access has the ability to form thrombus, including peripherals, especially, I mean, the more recent studies are showing that midlines may have a higher thrombotic risk than than we currently knew or knew before. So when we do damage to the vessel, either through insertion or through an irritating product, that's again, going to cause coagulation to start forming. Um, We also have the thrombosis forming on the catheter itself. But, and then when you think about the catheter in a smaller vessel, it really needs to be placed, if it's centrally in a vessel where it only fills 45% of the vessel, that allows enough blood flow past so that you don't stagnate blood flow. If the catheter fills the vessel, or you know, is, is over that percentage point, and that's kind of a line in the sand that's been drawn, uh, then you're reducing blood flow. And anytime blood flow even slows, coagulation can happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So again, uh, proper placement is is, is, super, is just so important using ultrasound to make sure that the catheter is in the right size of vessel, that we're using the right size of catheter, uh, the smallest possible. Uh, so many facilities just want to put in this monster big catheter, and they are very convenient. I've worked in critical care for a long time. I want all the lines you can give me, but then we need to de escalate as soon as possible because the longer a big catheter is in, uh, the more stagnant the blood flow is, the more thrombotic it is. Yes. But unfortunately, once the vessels become damaged, then the even the chance of coagulation of, of thrombosis whether it be superficial or deep vein thrombosis, is set up. The body kind of gets set up for thrombosis. And so it can happen even in a delayed fashion, you know, a week, month later. That's really
0: interesting. And is it at that same site or is it we have more of a propensity then if we have a different VAD placed that that VAD now will very quickly thrombose?
1: Right. Uh, it, I mean, you would think logically it's it's the localized to where the damage was done. And, and I think that's been what's been seen. However, and you may be getting to this, uh, they've actually seen contralateral thrombosis yes. now. Um, and just out of the blue, it really, uh, there's no other reason for it. But you have a thrombosis in say the left arm with a pick and they happen to ultrasound the right arm and find a thrombotic occlusion there, or at least the start of one. Uh, They're seeing that also with midline catheters, Uh, so and that is fairly new, at least that I've seen in the literature, so it's difficult to say what impact that is or what the cause is, but it really makes me think, and again, this is my my thinking through it, but that it really sets up a body, a systemic response, as opposed to just a localized one.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's go back to what you mentioned about higher incidence of phobitis with midline catheters. What it is? What is it that we know now from research that we
1: didn't know a few years ago? Well, uh, boy, they are definitely uh, an area, a hotbed of of research and concern. Again, the midline use is escalated uh, due to reduction strategies uh, but, you know, they are used appropriately. There's no question. And they have a place. However, when they're used inappropriately on a patient that has say, complex, you know, infusion needs, um, maybe uh, a vesicant, people really are seeing it almost as a pseudo pick in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And they're using it for extended periods of time. And even when there may be symptoms, uh, just again, to avoid a, a central line. So we, we need to place them accurately, we need to place them for the right reasons. Standards say perfectly compatible infusions. uh, They don't necessarily outline exactly what that means, but there are some good research studies that are available to guide that. And it really is a facility's decision what they want to allow in a midline catheter. So there's certainly been some good studies as far as bank at certain uh, doses or certain concentrations that may be tolerated for up to, again, 14 days is, is the magic guidelines, the, the Michigan appropriateness for vascular access, and also INS has followed that. Um, there are some newer studies. Uh, there is a sheep study we talked about in the standards that it was remarkable what they did. They gave infusions of high and low pH, cytotoxicity, and osmolarity in a sheep, uh, a series of sheep. They put a midline in both arms of, of these sheep and then did normal saline in one. And then uh, it chose some kind of um, high or low infusate in those categories. And then at a certain point, they, of course, assessed them carefully. And then at a certain point, the sheep were euthanized and they did actual uh, visual assessment by histology scores. And what they found was the uh, the test arm where the TH, uh, cytotoxicity, and uh, osmolarity products were going, their uh, vessel vessel injury score was dramatically higher. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, uh, really making it seem like there are some drugs that we should not be doing in the peripheral vasculature at that point. Again, it's sheep, but their vasculature is very similar, and we can't do a similar study in humans, (laughs) so uh, I think it was very instructive. And so I think we're going to see more and more research really focused on the midline and what its role truly is, because again, it does have a clear role. We just need to make sure and use it correctly and assess. We've, we've got to assess and remove as soon as a complication happens rather than continue to try to extend its life. You know, once, once we lose blood return, we have to think there's something thrombotic probably going on there. And uh, what then is the risk to the patient? Yes.
0: So Barb, let's let's tackle another VAD complication. What one would you like to choose? We could talk about CVAD occlusions. We could talk about skin injury uh, that's catheter associated. We could talk about infection. What's your t- topic of choice?
1: Well, uh, I mean, infection. I've done a great deal of research on. More specifically. To uh, peripheral, and because again, I think that's an area that is not well known. We have peripheral IV infections. There is no question. We just really don't know the incidence of them. And and I I know. I mean, I see it in my facility. I see it in other facilities. People are still not scrubbing adequately when they start an IV. They're repalpating. Many nurses still take a finger off a glove and repalpate, all of which contaminates the site. Uh, And again, we're just thinking that accessing the peripheral vasculature is benign when, in fact, it's not. And there's really clear evidence that staph aureus in particular, if we introduce staph aureus into the vasculature in a peripheral vascular vein through um, a VAD, that that has a higher incidence of metastatic infection, of length of bacteremia, and even an impact on mortality, and again, those are fo- the facts that I don't think uh, the average nurse is aware of. I think if they understood the risk of peripheral IV access, that we would take it more seriously. But mm-hmm. uh, that's a message that we just need to really continue to share. Yeah. And you can actually seed a peripheral, you know, people don't use a, a patient's port or think that they're doing uh, the patient a favor by not putting a central line in and not getting an infection. You were talking about the doors into a theater. Well, if a patient gets a BSI from a peripheral line versus a central line, they don't really care.
0: It doesn't <laughs> make any the difference.
1: Outcome to them.
0: The patient is still sick.
1: Exactly. It's yeah. just that it impacts our reimbursement when it's central versus peripheral because those are not regulated. They're not monitored. I hope in the years to come, they will get there mm-hmm. uh, because, again, I think there's very clear patient harm that's being reported. And so I do anticipate that'll come at some point. Thankfully, there's good research studies looking at improving care, insertion and maintenance of the peripheral line that are making a difference. So as those studies continue to mount, we'll know what interventions really make a difference.
0: So Barb, when we're talking about a BSI from a peripheral catheter, what does it look like? What is a nurse assessing?
1: hmm well, um, first of all, we have to suspect that it's even a source because that isn't typically one we do. Mm-hmm. And so we we need to be looking at all of them. And unfortunately, the outcomes really of a peripheral IVA complication, when you think about the main symptoms of infiltration versus phlebitis versus uh, a localized site infection, there's redness, there's possibly drainage, there's tenderness, Um and possibly some swelling. So they could all look the same. And that's part of our outcome issue with PIVs. Are we all calling them the same thing? Likely not. Mm-hmm. So do we really know what the incidence is for phlebitis infiltration infection? No. no. In fact, uh, again, the Helm article I mentioned earlier, he really mentions, he feels that quite a bit of phlebitis, it's being called phlebitis in the literature, is really infection. Yes. And yes. that we're not calling it correctly. And so likely our rates are much higher.
0: So far more than a localized infection that would be obvious to any of us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Far more than that. It's it's understanding those skin commensal organi- organisms um, that, that we can
1: certainly send right into the patient. Yeah. Think of the common commensals we have on our skin and staph aureus being a, a big one. And yeah, it is, it is such a risk. And you know, when we're securing the IV and our dressing comes loose or, you know, they're sweaty and just all the things that can happen, plus, you know, all the access that we do uh, from a needleless connector, are we cleansing it every time we enter? So it, it can be asymptomatic. We can cause a BSI and there's no change whatsoever at the site. So looking for a, an insertion site infection as, as the first sign obviously is not correct, as you're alluding to. They they can be you know have a bacteria uh, bacteremia uh, from me putting in a contaminated syringe or you know not mm-hmm. cleansing well and so there's nothing wrong with the site um, so it, we just have to know that it's in the lineup for causes of bacteremia on our it's patient. a portal
0: of entry absolutely yep.
1: it is a portal of entry and it really needs to be suspected and then if there are some signs check with the provider it would really be helpful if we did more cultures of catheter tips of peripheral peripheral Mm -hmm. vessels. We would know more what our CRBSI rate is related Mm -hmm. to peripheral vasculature.
0: Absolutely. Barb, you have done such a a great job today. I know we weren't able to cover every single VAD complication, but just having a good talk with a clinician just like you uh, to talk to us about assessment at the bedside. What is it that nurses really need to focus in on? How can we better serve our patients by providing the safest infusion therapy possible? All right, any closing thoughts before we wrap up this segment of our podcast?
1: Well, again, knowledge of the standards. uh, That was where I started and realized what a goldmine and what I didn't know. So you have to broaden your scope Understand patient risk. Know that every VAD has a risk, and that we have to do a very good job of taking care of our patients and minimizing the risk to them um, with that expertise. And there's, yeah, there's just no, no other way about it. And then we need to continue to assess, knowing that complications are going to happen, uh, not just assuming that they won't. But we have to catch them as soon as possible, and then know how to manage them. Uh, so, yeah, again, there's there's a great deal of help in standards, and you need to know who your vascular access experts are. Who can you call when you need something really quickly? Uh, Find out who those people are so that you're making good decisions for your patients no matter what happens.
0: Thank you so much, Barb. I appreciate you being in the infusion room today with me, and we wish you well. And I think actually just one little thing um, that PIV maintenance bundle or insertion bundle I think you're the person to get that thing started aren't you well that's
1: that would be great
0: (laughs) I like to teach you just a little bit but absolutely Um, you are the clinician to to go forward with that work Mm -hmm. thank you so much for being here you
1: bet thank you This
0: concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.